Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance. You know, it's hard to tell. I know that uh, uh, Israel and Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, who I think is uh, an obstacle to peace rather than an engine for peace, uh, they would very much like America, like the United States, to uh, move militarily with respect to Iran. Today, Amos and X chat with former North Dakota Senator Byron Dorgan in a wide-ranging conversation that tackles everything from energy and health policy to Standing Rock. Oh, and disaster fiction. The Dickinson, North Dakota native and old-school Democrat left his post as the North Dakota Tax Commissioner for the U.S. House of Representatives in 1980. He was then elected to the U.S. Senate in 1992 and served for nearly 20 years before opting not to run for re-election in 2010. Over the course of 30 years in Washington, Dorgan was arguably one of the most progressive voices in Congress. An early supporter of renewable energy and net neutrality, Dorgan opposed the North American Free Trade Agreement and voted against Bill Clinton's Telecommunications Act of 1996, which accelerated media industry consolidation and allowed for greater partisanship and sensationalism in journalism. He was also one of only eight senators to vote against the repeal of the Depression-era Glass-Steagall Act in 1999. This repeal, which deregulated the financial industry and paved the way for the creation of the so-called too-big-to-fail superbanks, effectively triggered the economic collapse of 2008-2009. Today... Dorgan serves as a senior policy advisor for Aaron Fox LLP, a Washington, D.C. lobbying firm, and is a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center where he focuses on energy policy issues. Oh, and he's also an author. Besides his 2006 book on trade, downsizing, and outsourcing, Take This Job and Ship It, Dorgan co-authored two novels with David Hagberg, Blowout in 2012 and Gridlock in 2013. The former takes on the very real threat of climate disaster and posits North Dakota as ground zero for the climate solutions that will have to emerge if humans are to save our civilization this century. In the preface to Blowout, Dorgan writes, quote, We may have already reached the carbon dioxide tipping point, which in effect means that even if the planet reduced its carbon emission to zero, it may take a thousand years for the Earth to heal itself. And so here we are, living in the end times with Senator Dorgan. Enjoy. Hello, uh, Senator Dorgan. Hi, it is. How are you? Oh, hey, I'm good. It's uh, this is Brian Schultz. Nice to hear your voice. Uh, thanks for your time, Hi, Brian. So, Happy to do it, of course. Excellent. So I'm here with my my colleague Aaron. Hi, Senator. Um, so part of what we're interested in is explicitly forward-looking in terms of you've been right on so many issues. Going, you know, uh, just to name a couple, like the. You were the, one of the few senators who voted against uh, the pushback of Glass-Steagall. Um, and your 2006 book, Take This Job and Ship It, obviously presaged what happened after the financial crash. So we were kind of wondering if you decided to shift to more sort of utopian or dystopian fiction. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I had written uh, two books uh, about economic issues. One was titled Take This Job and Ship It, and the other was titled Reckless, How Debt, Deregulation, and Dark Money Nearly Bankrupted America. And 
So after two uh, books about economic issues, uh, I decided to try my hand at a couple of no uh, fiction or novels. And both of them, um, I, I, I chose uh, a couple of subjects that were very interesting to me. Uh, one was uh, work that was being done evaluating how you might continue to use coal in the future by turning coal into fuel underground in situ. And uh, that was that became a book called Blowout and uh, then a book uh, called Gridlock, which is about uh, the potential risks of uh, adversaries taking down the electric power lines in the United States. So that's I just you know it was both were interesting to me and I've just uh, uh, I just have finished my fifth book and that's about a different subject altogether. It's it's not a novel. It's a true story. But uh, so anyway, I'm I'm just meandering around here with these book subjects and uh, and have enjoyed it. Um, in so in terms of the the first novel, the Blowout 2012, in the I think it's the author's preface. You say. And this is a quote, we may be already, we may have already reached the carbon dioxide tipping point, uh, which in effect means that the planet reduced its carbon to zero, it would take a thousand years for the Earth to heal itself, et cetera, et cetera. If that was true in 2012, I guess I wanted to ask, you know, how, where do you see us as a sort of a planet and a species at in 2019, where things have essentially, essentially gotten worse? Well, I think we're at a crisis point uh, for sure, but it's not a crisis that's going to cause the you know, the collapse of uh, our economic system on Earth or the collapse of the ecosystem in 12 months or 24 months. But but clearly, we're headed towards great difficulty. And even if we move towards deep decarbonization right now uh, and, and are successful at what, are, what I call deep decarbonization, that probably still won't be enough. We, we probably need to develop technologies such as uh, a carbon renewal from the air, and uh, that's a different technology altogether. But we're, we're, you know, number one, we've got a president who believes that uh, climate change is a Chinese hoax. He is profoundly, uh, you know, I shouldn't use the term ignorant, but I mean, he's, with respect to climate change issues, he profoundly misunderstands what is happening, and his actions so far have been very dangerous to the long-term future of this planet. Um, to that point, I was wondering um, what your view is on nuclear, because there's been a renewed interest in advancing nuclear power technology, uh, especially with this uh, bipartisan Senate bill that uh, mm -hmm. really allows for, uh, requires the government to buy energy for 40 years from each plant, which kind of extends the life of these plants indefinitely. And now that there are ways to manage waste and reuse waste as fuel and passively safe uh, nuclear, I was wondering about what, what was one of the things that was interesting to me. I saw a speech you gave to the American Petroleum Institute in, I believe, 2011, where you were advocating for, at the time, exploring all options, all fossil fuel options as well as all renewable options, which I think is interesting because in order to use, we're finding in order to use renewables effectively, it requires a baseload power source. And the, mm -hmm. the direction that's moved is away from coal, which is good, but into natural gas, which has its own set of right. issues. And so rather than kicking the can down the road, I mean, back then, when you were unequivocally in support of the idea that man-made climate change was happening, that was almost a radical idea in some circles. And so what I'm wondering is, do you still see um, the energy trajectory in the direction of 
developing everything, or does something like nuclear, which can even reproduce synthetic fuels, can uh, reliably decarbonize the air because it's uh, the capacity factor is so high? Is that is that an option that you think makes sense? Well, first of all, what what happened in 2006, 2007, 8 in that period, you know, we were a country that was uh, desperately short of fossil energy, and uh, particularly we had substantially increased oil exports or Im- excuse me, imports, substantially uh, increased imports somewhere around the 50% range uh, headed towards 60%. And then all of a sudden with horizontal drilling and uh, the shale play and a range of other things that dealt with both oil and natural gas, uh, we went from scarcity to abundance in oil and natural gas. And that should be a cause for celebration because it reduced uh, our uh, imports and so on. But the fact is, uh, natural gas, as a result of all of this, has become a bridge fuel. It's about 50% reduction in carbon from, uh, for example, coal source power plants. So natural gas has now, in very short order, become a bridge fuel that turns out to be very helpful in, in, in terms of um, producing fewer carbon emissions. But the the fact is we need much, much, much more um, renewable energy, and uh, that would include uh, uh, wind energy, for example, which I think can be firmed up. If you have wind in different places uh, and you geographically disperse the turbines, you you have the capability of almost firming up that power. And um, I think we're headed towards much, much more wind and solar and uh, and ultimately, we will continue to use fossil energy. I think we'll use less coal. But if we ever find a way to, to turn uh, coal beds underground in situ into liquid fuel, and, I, and there's a lot of work being done to try to determine whether that can be done, we can do that without carbon emissions. So, you know, I, I do support doing everything. But, uh, you know, I think we're headed towards a day when with uh, with electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles and so on that um, we're going to use less oil and probably then transition to using less natural gas. But that's going to be a while. It's going to be some decades. And uh, in the meantime, I think there's a crisis, and I think we need um, uh, direct uh, carbon removal from the airshed. We need, there are a series of things we need to do, and we need to – hurry and do them. But, uh, you know, we have a president that withdrew us from the Paris Accords. Uh, as I said, he thinks uh, this is a Chinese hoax, this notion of uh, of climate change. And he's just dead wrong about that and dangerously wrong. Right. And Well, so to the, the point of the crisis, do you see a role for increased nuclear? Well, first of all, uh, nuclear is pretty terrific in the sense that there are no uh, carbon emissions from uh, nuclear. Uh, we, we do have, we still do have a storage problem, but I mean, I have stood on glass floors in a plant in France where uh, where they have reprocessed spent fuels and uh, reduced fuels from, you know, uh, to, to like 10% of what the waste used to have been. So there are a number of things we can do to address that. But the other fact is simple. Uh, the cost per kilowatt hour for nuclear power is just unbelievably high. It's it's just, you know, out of the park almost. And uh, that's why it's, nobody's rushing to build new plants. 
um, if we can ever, you know, ever find a way to harness a nuclear fusion as opposed to fission, um, you know, maybe we'll see uh, many more plants built. But in the meantime, the cost per kilowatt hour is staggering. So the only way uh, nuclear, additional nuclear plants would be built would be uh, with very substantial subsidies. It, to the point about Trump's uh, willful blindness uh, uh, the climate, and I say that because, as uh, Noam Chomsky has pointed out, Trump's a firm believer in climate change. His golf course in Scotland once, you know, requested to build a seawall to protect uh, mm -hmm. rising sea levels. Um, but in in practice, as you point out, he with, withdrew us from the Paris Accords, which didn't go far enough by any means, but were at least a step, a diplomatic step in the right direction. Um, is the solution then, in the face of uh, failed political leadership? a grassroots populist movement to push for something like, at least, if not directly, the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, the, the most important solution in my judgment is to uh, uh, relieve Mr. Trump of his duties as president uh, at the end of this term. Uh, and just, I mean, I, I feel so strongly that he is destroying the normative values of what uh, being a president should be and how they should behave and so on. But you know, aside from all of that, in addition to hopefully electing a president who cares about the danger to our planet of uh, climate change and, and uh, uh, so on, I, I, I really hope that uh, we are able to develop strategies uh, for energy use, and we need energy. This great economic engine of ours runs on a lot of energy. Hope we can develop strategies that... Uh, that employ the opportunities for deep decarbonization in the future. Thank you, Senator. So um, back to the, the book itself, Blowout, then. Again, you, you mentioned in there uh, one of these potential solutions among many um, includes the Dakota District Initiative, and I think you've kind of gestured to that already, but do you want to describe for the listeners what that is in the novel? Well, the novel, it's, I'll, I'll tell you the origin of it. About maybe 10 years ago, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal, an, an actual news story in the Wall Street Journal, and it had a persistent rumor uh, uh, about, well, I'm going to tell you about t two novels. One is a persistent rumor uh, about uh, the fact that, that either the Chinese or the Russians had implanted a virus in our electric grid system and could use that to shut down the electric grid if necessary. The other novel, and then that was about, you know, the book is therefore about energy issues, shutting down the electric grid and how vulnerable is the electric grid, et cetera. Uh, the other one is about uh, uh, the use of coal and the research that is going on. Uh, and I was particularly attentive to some research that was going on by the Exxon Corporation uh, with uh, some uh, someone who I think is an American hero named Craig Venter. He's an unbelievable innovator and inventor. Um, and and he, uh, he and Exxon collaborated on how might you find a way to uh, plant certain kinds of bacteria underground in a seam of coal, a coal bed, and have that, the, that bacteria eat through the coal and leave methane in their wake, which would mean that you'd be able to destroy a coal bed, a coal bed and turn it into gas. And... Uh, so how could you then use that fuel converting coal to to some other form of gas? And so that became the the type of novel, and the novel was about a top-secret project in western North Dakota and uh, had some interesting characters in it, and uh, it, uh, it 
well, I, have, I guess enough said. I, I think both the novels were kind of interesting and both dealt with energy issues. One of the things that I found interesting about the premise was sort of uh, what most people view as the middle of nowhere was this Manhattan Project type of initiative to basically save the world. And mm -hmm. along those lines, uh, something we talk about on this show from time to time is exploring the legacy of the NPL in North what do you see as the, that progressive populist legacy in the current moment? And if any, what lessons could we draw to engage with today? Well, the, you know, the experience of the old nonpartisan league, particularly dating back to oh, 1917, 1918, when, uh, you know, the story goes that uh, a legislator from Cass County, the, you know, the uh, the big city in North Dakota, Fargo and Cass County, apparently uh, told a group of uh, farmers who had come to the state legislature to wage their grievances about various things and, and grain prices, among others. And uh, the legislator from Fargo was reported to have said, well, you guys go home and slop your hogs in a very dismissive way. And two years later, uh, those uh, farmers had organized section line to section line across North Dakota and came back during the election and won control of the state legislature. It's a pretty interesting time. There's a movie about it called Prairie Fire. And uh, it's, um, you know, it was a time when they decided, you know what, we, we want to control some destiny ourselves and our own destiny, and we, we're going to build a state mill and elevator. We're going to create a state bank and, and so on. So they, that, that progressive strain, I think, you know, existed in North Dakota for a long, long time. I, I don't see so much of it at the moment. Uh, unfortunately, I wish wish I'd see more strains of uh, a productive populism in which the the power of people had a, a substantial influence on on politics. But I, I regrettably don't see as much of that these days. That doesn't mean that the capability doesn't exist, and there are ways to organize. Uh, for example, a good example of that would be just in the last election, a group of North Dakotans feeling that in the state legislature and in statewide elected officials and so on, there were virtually no ethics laws that prevented these people from doing you know, virtually anything. And so they decided, let's create a, a new ethic, uh, a, a new set of ethics laws and standards and initiate a measure. And they did, and they won. And good for them. I mean, that's that's the kind of populist strain that makes some sense. Right. And then uh, prior to that, the ban on uh, corporate farming in North Dakota was upheld by initiative very strongly. I think like 70% mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that independent spirit persists. I wonder what you think of uh, an emergent phenomenon like the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, who kind of take this same um, progressive spirit and try to win at, uh, at this point local levels. Um, I guess AOC would be an example yeah. of someone at a national level. But do you see potential there? Well, listen, I, you know, first of all, I'm not a socialist. I'm, I'm, I, I believe in our economic system in our country. It's kind of gotten off the, the track for a while, but uh, th there are things that we do in our country that, that smack of uh, a much more progressive or much more socialist tendency. For example, uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, just to, to use some example, or the farm program. 
I mean, you know, so there are some tendencies in that area. But, but look, I'm I'm not someone who who believes that someone who's campaigning as a quote socialist unquote is somebody that I would support. Look, Bernie Sanders is a perfectly good guy. He, I mean, he's a little grumpy. I mean, I served with him in the Senate, and I was with him in these caucuses for a long time. And but, but he's he's not a Democrat. He's he's registered as a socialist now. I think he's changed his registration more recently. But so, but I don't stand up and say to people, you know, I, I'm I'd like to change our entire economic system because I'm a socialist. I'm I'm not a socialist. That's not that's not my intention with respect to our long-term economic circumstances in the United States. I think. That, you know the the, the 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 best allocator of goods and services in our country is a market system. The problem is a market-based system relies on competition, and that so the, the you know the the interaction of competition generally produces pretty good results. Regrettably, there's not nearly enough competition these days because most of the companies have become bigger and bigger and stronger and want to control markets. And you can just get on the list of. You know, cable, you name it. Virtually every kind of company is rolling up into uh, uh, oligopolies and, and near monopolies, and I think the consumer is very disadvantaged by that. That is not what I call free enterprise, the way it's playing out these days. It is capturing markets and eliminating competition. Right, and um, and more of my question, not so much uh, whether or not you see yourself as a socialist or whether a command economy is better. Uh, the Democratic DSA, in my view, is generally after pretty pragmatic goals, like their big banner issue is Medicare for All, for instance. And uh, given the, like, in Take This Job and Ship It, you have kind of an implicit, if not explicit, reference to FDR's policies um, in in the New Deal, some of which you mentioned, Social Security, et cetera. Right. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is, like, what's the what's the bridge to get back to um a more functional market system as you're as you're describing or um if if we're to institute a new new deal to fight climate change and to um at the same time attempt to rehabilitate the economy in a way that works for main street um i guess what do you make of that is does that seem desirable if not viable well, I, sure. I mean, I like the notion of a, a real green deal and where we pr put emphasis on uh, much more uh, production of green energy, uh, lower carbon energy and so on. But, you know, what happened is, uh, you know, some people put out the the, uh, the new green deal and, uh, you know, then some some of the Republicans, uh, for example, said, well, that means you wouldn't be able to fly airplanes, you wouldn't be able to drive your car, you wouldn't be able to do this or that. Well, that's all nonsense that we should aspire to have uh, lower uh, emissions of carbon in order to try to save this planet of ours. And so we should reach out and, and reach high in terms of our aspirations to make that happen. Um, I, you know, let me come back to something else you said, because I frankly don't support Medicare for all. And I'll tell you why I don't. I, I, we, we have a system. I support the Affordable Care Act, voted for it, feel very strongly about it. I don't think it's perfect, and that needs to be improved as well. Of course, Trump is trying to kill it, and uh, the Republicans in the House and the Senate have voted, what, 50, 60 times to try to kill it. I don't think it makes much sense in a circumstance where you have around 80 to 90 million people 
who are, who get their health care uh, at their workplace uh, to decide, okay, now we're going to move the entire system into one form of Medicare. Um, so I, I I think the much better approach is to dramatically improve the Affordable Care Act. And uh, I, I don't think the – I mean, they call it Obamacare. That's a pejorative because they want it to uh, – to be seen as something that Obama did, and they believe, I guess, their supporters uh, who don't support Obama will will be will feel negative about it. But but look, I, this is the kind of debate we should have. I'm, uh, while I say I don't, I'm not somebody that jumps on the bandwagon for Medicare for all. Um, for those who do, good for them. Have, let's have this discussion, have this debate, and let's have some votes and and see you know what direction we take this. I, I sure don't think that what is happening on the Republican side does anything but injure our country. They have no plan at all for health care improvement, none. You know, they keep talking about we have a plan. They have no plan. All they want to do is destroy the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act, uh, and without filibustering your question here, the Affordable Care Act is for the first time said if you have pre-existing conditions, uh, we know you're tired of getting insurance, having insurance companies turn you down because you don't have uh, yet because you have a pre-existing condition. Now they cannot turn you down. Uh, I mean that that is a huge huge deal. Because so many Americans have pre-existing conditions, and the insurance companies were either not insuring them or charging them rates that they couldn't possibly afford because they had a pre-existing condition. And I know President Trump and others say, well, we support pre-existing conditions. Total nonsense. In fact, when they decided that not everybody has to have health insurance you know, to get rid of the mandate, once you got rid of the mandate, there is no way that the uh, requirement on pre-existing conditions will continue to stand, and they know that. It strikes me um... – Though that in order it, it is you're proposing, I we support Medicare for all in this show, and we don't need to like hash all that out. But I wonder how much more difficult it would be to strengthen the Affordable Care Act, Act given the deadlock in Congress around the right now. And so mm-hmm. that's not necessarily to say. So that the the problem that I see, I suppose, is that that deadlock that gridlock or whatever doesn't appear to be getting better. And to maybe like throw it back to the economic side a little bit, um, I, I was really fascinated reading about your uh, pushback of the rollback of Glass-Steagall in the late 90s where you basically predicted exactly what would happen with the financial crash with unregulated derivatives. Market. And then in Take This Job and Ship It, you were talking about the – the need for unions and a functional Main Street economy in order for people mm-hmm. to have a stable way of life. And so I wonder, like, I guess, uh, what do you see as uh, a way forward in this climate of, you know, I just saw a report from two years ago that uh, an MIT researcher reclassified the U.S. as a developing nation because the economy is <laughs> rough and, you know, 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, et cetera. Right. Um, what 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 do you see as a way forward given the situation we find ourselves in, and given that you were right about so much in the past? Well, I was right about the repeal of Glass Steagall. I mean, that was put together post second, post Great Depression, I should say, and and uh, the notion back then was let's not mix. Uh, insurance and securities and banking, one of which requires not only the safety and soundness, but there's this sheer 
you know, the perception of being safe and sound. You mix that with speculative areas such as insurance and real estate and uh, securities, and you you have a mess on your hands. And that's exactly what has happened. You know, naked credit default swaps, CDOs, and all these sophisticated instruments that Wall Street was throwing out there. They had no idea what the hell they were doing, and it nearly caused a complete collapse of the of our economy. But you know, to step back a bit, what what we desperately need and haven't had for many decades is antitrust enforcement. There's no cause to be accepting monopolies or near monopolies with these companies. Just today, uh, I see the FCC chairman has indicated he's going to support the uh, combination of two very large telephone mobile telephone companies. And and but you know, to what end? It's the same is true with cable television. The same is true with. Uh, with um, mobile phones, and it's true in many manufacturing areas. You know, it's just, it's very hard to see that there's unfettered competition that gives uh, consumers a fair chance. And so, you know, what I think we need in the economy, obviously, we have an economic engine that's running pretty well at the moment, but it doesn't benefit everybody. It overwhelmingly benefits those at the top. And, uh, and so that's why people are pretty upset. You know, they say, well, you know, if if the economy is so good, why am I having trouble scraping up enough money to buy a used car or to put groceries on the table? You know, and I, and I think, incidentally, let me just say that, you know, most people, I think, when they sit around the supper table and are thinking about themselves and their families, they're not asking controversial questions. They're asking simple ones that affect their lives. Do I have a good job? Do I have job security? Does it pay well? Uh, do my kids go to good schools? Do grandpa and grandma have access to decent health care? Do I live in a safe neighborhood? All of these things represent the things most people care about in their daily lives. And, you know, I, tragically, I say that much of our politics in this country is about fighting the other side, and too little of it's about trying to address those basic questions about how people are living their daily lives and what kind of opportunities they have. So in that sense, do you think that at least in this specific sense, he's right that in order to change the trajectory of the country, we really do need a grassroots uprising of sorts of people organizing locally to take over government. Absolutely. I mean, Thomas Jefferson described, you know, the need for revolution from time to time. By by that, it doesn't. Uh, the revolution is a, in a peaceful sense, the voters deciding that uh, they have an opportunity to change government and to determine what kind of government they want. You know, the longest, as they say, the longest line in American history is the voting line. And, uh, for example, just in the last year or so, we saw, uh, less than a year, we saw an election in which a, a very large number of new candidates came to Washington, D.C. to serve in Congress. And, they, they, I mean, they they came because they cared about health care. They care about a lot of things. And mostly they care about tr trying to push back against a president that they think is dangerous. And and is doing you know I mean just just this morning you listen to uh, the circumstance with respect to uh, uh, Iran you know the, the the president pulls us out of the Iran nuclear agreement and now we you know we have Mr Bolton at his side in the White House uh, who has a long record of believing that we ought to 
perhaps use military force to force uh, regime change in Iran. We, we've got lots of lots of dangerous things going on, in my judgment. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think the power of the power is in the hands of people by going to the voting booth, and you also can initiate measures, which I think are important. And the people have the right and the opportunity, I think, to gather up an organization and move forward and say, you know what, we want to change things, and we're damn determined to do it. Um, with regard to Iran and I guess Venezuela and Bolton's reemergence from the, the swamp of the ex-Bush years. What do you think, in your view, do you think that the the saber-rattling around Iran from the, the Trump regime, do you think that that has teeth? Like, is that something that seems like may happen? You know, it's hard to tell. I know that uh, uh, Israel and Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, who I think is uh, an obstacle to peace rather than an engine for peace, uh, they would very much like, America, like the United States, to um, move militarily with respect to Iran. Uh, Netanyahu is pushing very hard for our country to get out of the Iranian nuclear agreement, and of course the president complied with that and did it. A huge step backwards in my judgment. I don't know what's going to happen with Iran or Venezuela. The the president uh, obviously rattles sabers. Um, that's pretty tradition for, for traditional. I should say pretty traditional for a lot of presidents to rattle sabers, but he does it um, more generally than most. And uh, you know, take a look at North Korea. I have no idea what all this has meant with North Korea. He's gone to meet with Kim Jong Un a couple of times. The president has, and yet uh, all of the intelligence suggests that North Korea is very busy building, uh, continuing to build additional nuclear weapons. So. I never objected to having our president talk to North Korea, although uh, it, it gave Kim Jong-un a pretty big boost to have the president meet with him. But obviously, there's there's not much progress there. So we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, I've had a, like an emerging idea that in Trump's case, when he threatens to do something, that seems to mean he won't do it, foreign policy-wise. But that, that could just be false. Um with regard to nuclear proliferation, um, I guess that would be another sort of dystopian future that we may be facing. Uh, is are the winds blowing toward de denuclearization in terms of our weapon systems, or uh, is Trump's threat to modernize nuclear weapon systems is that real? Well, that is real, and it's also very expensive. The issue of modernizing the nuclear deterrent. Uh, I don't particularly think it needs modernizing. We have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the planet many times over and the delivery system to, to make it happen. But, um, I, you know, look, we have a responsibility, in my judgment, as a country and as a leader uh, to, to push very hard to, to prevent further uh, expansion of uh, nuclear countries. Uh, Non-proliferation is very important, and the you know the the other side, the proliferation of additional nuclear weapons to additional countries just puts the world in much greater jeopardy. Jeopardy. And by the way, I don't mean this to be an anti-Trump screed, but the fact is that the president, uh, for the first time in my memory, a a national leader, President Trump, has said, "Well, why shouldn't uh, Saudi Arabia, Japan, and South Korea have nuclear?" nuclear weapons. Well, why? I mean, are you kidding me? Why not? Because our country is trying desperately to stop the spread of nuclear weapons. Uh, the president was 
said to have asked an advisor in the White House, why can't we use nuclear weapons? Well, I'll tell you why you can't use them. The, the, the explosion of one nuclear weapon in anger will dramatically change the face of planet Earth. It just it just will because it will it will result in additional explosions of other nuclear weapons and uh, when you look at the countries that have them and now China is acquiring quite a stock uh, the biggest biggest stocks of nuclear weapons are the U.S. and uh, and uh, the, the and Russia I was going to say the Soviet Union and you know look the last talks that we've had with this with Russia and Putin uh, that resulted in an arms agreement uh, I was one of the senators that was. Uh, one of the advisors on those talks, and the, the the fact is, those things take a long time, and uh, it's really, really important for all of us to care about stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons. I'm on the board of the Center for Arms Control and care a lot about this issue, and uh, it's just, boy, we, we've we've got to find a way to prevent the further spread of nuclear weapons and to stop the stop forever the use of any nuclear weapon. What do you think would be an effective way forward on that? Obviously, Trump pulled out, as I recall, pulled out of one uh, nuclear treaty with Russia, which uh, further destabilizes an already intensified situation. There's no effort that I know of currently underway, either uh, by the State Department or any other agency in government, to try to begin negotiations with Russia and others about nonproliferation and also about the reduction of nuclear weapons. You know, it's really important to continue the further reduction of nuclear weapons. We all have, when I say all, I'm talking about the U.S. and Russia and China, um, Israel, Pakistan, others. Um, we have plenty of nuclear weapons to destroy the planet. We we just desperately need to reduce the trigger point and reduce the number of nuclear weapons. And so I just I really wish that uh, the president and others would begin that process of creating negotiating teams, beginning to reach out and work with other countries, all of whom should have an interest in trying to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. Well, I mean to that point, a couple questions to follow up, and I don't know how much time you have left, uh, Senator, but. I think we, uh, I think we've asked on this show, in fact, why you didn't run for president at some point. <laughs> well, I did. Hold on a second. I'm sorry. Uh, I, you know, I, I think every United States senator probably looks in the mirror and sees a future president. You know, for one, every, every senator is pretty vain about things. But by by that, I mean, I think most senators, and I certainly felt that way about myself, felt that that I could do better than some that I have watched. Uh, but I, I never gave serious thought to it. There was there were a couple of circumstances where people were. I remember there was a guy in Maryland who was particularly uh, uh, excited about circulating petitions and so on, asking me to run. And but I, I just never gave serious thought to it, honestly. And and uh, you know now we have what 22 people in the Democratic primaries out there. It's, it's more than enough. That's very very North Dakota answer. I appreciate that. And to that point, too, you mentioned earlier uh, uh, this other book, this fifth book. Do you want to summarize what, what's in that? The book is uh, a book that resulted from an experience I had. It, I've, I've dealt a lot with Native Americans uh, in my life. Uh, they were here first, as you know, and uh, greeted the pilgrims and others. And uh, uh, they have really been assaulted in so many ways by uh, a, a lot of things. Uh, 
you know, we've stolen much of their land and mishandled most of the resources from that land and the trust accounts and all these things. And at any rate, there was a story years ago in the newspapers, in fact, it was 1990, uh, about Indian children being abused. And there was a photograph of one young Native American girl on the front cover of this Sunday newspaper with a tear running down her cheek and the beautiful child. But she had been beaten severely in a foster home. They put in a foster home, taken away from her parents because they were neglected her and abused her. And put in a foster home. She her her arm, her leg, her nose was broken. Her hair pulled out at the roots, and then she laid in the empty room for several days without medical attention. I went to the Indian reservation where that happened and met with uh, this young girl about a year later. Uh, when much of what had happened to her was healed, and I met with her and her grandfather and um, sent her a couple of Christmas gifts uh, the next couple of years, and then her grandfather died, and I lost track of her. And um, about 27 years later, it's exactly 27 years later, I got an email from her. I always wondered what happened to her. I asked whenever I'd go to the Indian Reservation if anybody knew, nobody knew, and I, 27 years later, I got an email from her, and uh, she had been homeless in Minneapolis for many years, and she had had the most difficult of lives. She had PTSD and and has been assaulted and abused and try, attempted to take her own life and so on. And I, 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 I as a result of that. Uh, decided that I wanted to write a story about her, and she agreed. And um, the story was very—I'll just give you one paragraph of it. She had no idea what had happened to her when she was homeless in Minneapolis, and and she went to a a computer at the library to try to evaluate, is there anything she could find that might have happened to her? Because she had no memory of her youth, and she knew something was wrong. She had PTSD. She went to this computer— and she found by Googling her name and doing an advanced search, she found a speech I had given about her in the United States Senate. And um, that's what resulted in her sending me an email. And so I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to write this story. And so the story is about her, her life, about what uh, what she has gone through and how she survived it. And uh, it's a broader story as well about Native Americans and what has happened to them and uh, what we need to do to try to address those wrongs. So it's sort of policy is embedded in that story as well. You have suggestions or Yes. Yes. There's a lot of it. And, you know, I've, I've, I've surrounded the story about this young girl. She's 34 now, by the way, but I've surrounded that story with a description of kind of all the, the challenges that have existed out there. And then I, I finished the book by describing what, what we really have an obligation to do. You know, there was a, a, a historian who was giving a lecture, Indian historian giving a lecture at a college and, and some, some, uh, but in the audience said, well, but look, and he described the difficulties and what had happened to Indians and how they'd been betrayed and so on. And, they, and the guy said, well, wait, wasn't that, wasn't that something between your ancestors and my ancestors? And and um, the historian said, yes, that's true. But it's also the case that it's your responsibility to help fix it because you know the story. Once you know the story, you have an obligation to help address it. And so that's the point of this book. And uh, we'll see. I mean, it's on the fall schedule of St. Martin's Press in New York. And it'll be out, I think, uh, I think it's in November. So what are some of the policies then that you describe? 
Well, there are a whole series of them, and some of them deal with uh, energy. You know, the Native Americans have been consigned to reservations that were drawn largely by non-Indians, and uh, but on those reservations, there's a great deal of uh, of energy, uh, particularly wind energy, I should say. Many reservations in the northern Great Plains have some very substantial wind capability. So that wind that blows across those prairies, uh, there's a, an ability to capture energy and price that energy in a way that benefits uh, Native Americans. And that has not happened nearly enough. It needs to happen in a, in a very aggressive way. There are a whole series of other things that I have described as remedies in the book that are non-energy as well. But I think we'll let somebody buy the book and read it. And I think they'll, you know, it's a tough book in many ways, but I think people will enjoy reading it. And I think it's a book that really needs to be written. Girl in the Photograph, that's the title. So this is available for pre-order? I don't know if it is. On, I, I, I just don't know. I just got a, um, a note from the publisher yesterday saying that they had just sold the audio rights to the book. So it'll be out in uh, in hardcover and audio, I think. And I think it's not until November, but it's on their fall schedule. That's excellent. Uh, so uh, very quickly then, too, uh, did you have any thoughts? or I mean, connecting all these issues together, the American Indian experience and energy and so on, um, thoughts or responses to what was going on at Standing Rock in 2016? I've written about that in the book. There's a chapter about it in the book. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, look, the um, Fort Laramie Treaty described where the boundaries are on Indian reservations. And uh, after after they described those boundaries as a result of negotiation between the Indians and the non-Indians, uh, they then reneged on it and essentially took uh, much of that property away. Uh, down at Standing Rock, it's true that the pipe was going to go across uh, the river one mile north of the uh, existing boundary for the Standing Rock Reservation. But it's also true that that boundary has never been recognized by the Indians because that boundary was taken by the federal government after the Fort Laramie Treaty. Look, I think piping uh, that oil and natural gas is better than doing it by rail and safer. Uh, but the fact is, everything breaks. And I, if you know, the, the, originally that route for that pipeline was going to be north of Bismarck, North Dakota. And I think it's reasonable to ask the question: Why did that route change to a route right outside the reservation? or inside the reservation if you're a Native American. Um, so why did that change? Who changed it? And um, there's a whole series of questions, and I've written a chapter about it. I, I think it was an unfortunate situation, but uh, you know, there were a lot of Native Americans from across the country uh, came to North Dakota and were rightly upset about what was happening, uh, and they, they wanted to be consulted. They wanted to have their voices heard about uh, their concern about water and their concern about uh, a pipe underneath the, the water source that serves their reservation. All right. Well, we look forward to your new book, and we really appreciate your time. So thanks a lot for uh, bearing with us here today. No, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm pleased that you're doing a, a you know a, a broadcast or a podcast, either one with a progressive bent because I think uh, I think it's really important. Our state has a history of, of populism and our state has a progressive history. And I think our state has lost a lot of that. So God bless you for, you know, resurrecting some of it. All right. Well, we look forward. Maybe we'll talk to you again uh, after your book comes out. All right. Feel free. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Go north to Dakota, Dakota. 
mighty big country with lots of room. A rough rider's dream called North Dakota. North Dakota! We've got lots of legends. We don't need to brag. But Teddy Roosevelt became a resident. The next thing you know, he was the president. Rough riding Teddy. Everything you need to occupy your time. You can watch a rodeo or ease your mind. On a cool, clear lake in the evening time. You can drop a line to a fish in North Dakota. North Dakota. Go north to Dakota. Dakota, North Dakota. Now we're not bluffing. You ain't seen nothing like the rough rider land of North Dakota. 